Mosaic, how we doing? Doing all right? Well, it's, it's really good to be with you guys. And uh, man, if I look beat and exhausted, it's because I am. Uh, I went to a concert last night. It was a Christian hip-hop concert, which I know is normally a recipe for disaster. Um, those two usually don't go well together. Uh, but it was great, but it was a three-and-a-half-hour show, and I think I jumped up and down and screamed for about a solid hour and a half. And uh, I am sore in places this morning. I forget. I have muscles there. And uh, I just can't hang with the kids anymore. So I'm, I'm beat, but I'm excited. And, you know, last night I met this Christian event, and I don't know how many of you, like, grew up in a Christian context, but uh, when I go to an event like that, I almost, I wait for this moment, because uh, so often it's there, and it's the moment uh, when we bring the person up on stage who has, like, the amazing testimony, right? Like, the amazing story. Uh, and, and so, like, when I was a kid, there's always, like, the great testimony. I remember as a church kid, you know, feeling like I didn't really have one. And I remember Tim Hawkins saying the same thing, you know. It's like you, you, they bring the person up who is addicted to crack, and then they found Jesus, and they got clean. And he's like, I remember thinking, I wish I was addicted to crack, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I was waiting for that moment last night. And, and, and honestly, I was glad it never came. Not, not because those stories aren't important, but so often... Uh, they're not entirely honest. Because um, the narrative for a lot of those stories, uh, and some of you have heard this so many times, it's almost like the only way you can even understand telling your story in a Christian context, is my life was messed up, then I met Jesus, right? And things have been great ever since. You know, I'm not the same person, I'm clean off crack, like just happily ever after. Uh, and, and it bothers me. It's not, it's not a true story. It's not the whole truth. You know, and we find this fi- finding its way into, into Christian art a lot. I, I watched a documentary this week uh, with Bono and Eugene Peterson, and they were talking about this, and they're actually talking about the context of the Psalms. And Bono just said, you know, I find a lot of, um, uh, what do you say? I, say, I, I see a lot of falsehood, uh, dishonesty in Christian art. He was like, I wish, I wish we could get real. I wish there was more realism in our music, in our art, and in our lives. Because uh, oftentimes it's cropped, it's edited, and it's just not true. It's... it's it's, it's like a shiny version of the real thing that's been buffed and packaged to be something that, that isn't the entire truth. You know, so I, I remember why, this is, by the way, one of the reasons I, I hate Christian movies. You know, and if you don't hate Christian movies, that's okay. You're a better person than I am. You're less cynical. But I really have a hard time. So I remember seeing a Christian film a number of years back, and it was of this coach uh, who was not following Jesus, and his team was struggling, and his marriage was struggling. They, they were having infertility issues. They couldn't have kids. And... Um, and he was, things were struggling at work. And then, of course, you know, there's like the, the film. Finally, he, he ends up giving his life to Jesus. And then the team goes on and wins the championship, you know. And then all of a sudden, the infertility issues go away, and he becomes a sniper overnight, and they get pregnant. And then, like, things at work come together. And then he gets, like, a truck, like, just the cherry on top, you know what I mean? And, and I watch that, and I'm like, that's not real, you know. That's not real. Um, it's not real. And, and one of the things that bothers me about it is it, it really sets people up for unrealistic expectations. You know, I, I watch something like that, I'm like, not even an honest Christian can, can relate with that narrative. And the truth is, there's a lot of authors and people who penned the inspired words of, of the scriptures who also, I don't think, can resonate with that narrative. And they present to us something that's far more raw and far more honest. And so in, in the Psalms, for example, we find... Things like this, words like this, in the sacred literature. Right? How long, O oh Lord, how long? Right? Will you forget me forever? I've been there. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Words that Jesus would speak again later on. 
Oh God, why? Why do you cast us off? Why do you cast us off forever? All right, another one. But now you have cast us off and rejected us. You've renounced the covenant with your servant, right? Calling into question God's faithfulness from a place of disillusionment, right? Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, right? Now read words like this, and, and I'm just faced with maybe the reality is this book is a whole lot more honest than we are sometimes. And I find in that uh, a lot of hope, a lot of hope for us. You know, because the truth is, as it relates to our conversation today, as we continue our series, talking about the journey of a soul and talking today about the winter of a soul, inevitably, every single one of us will find ourselves in a winter of the soul. And if you don't expect it and you don't prepare for it, you will find yourself blindsided, disillusioned, and possibly, very possibly, interpreting and responding to your experience in a way that makes it worse. All right, so here's, here's what I want to do today. I want to actually look at a, uh, a psalm. And it's a psalm in which the psalmist is in the, the throes of winter. And I want us to hear his words, his prayer, and the way that he responds to where he's at. So we're going to be in Psalm 42. And this is what we find, beginning in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. When can I go and meet God? Right, my tears have been my food day and night, while people to say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng, but no longer. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, for deep calls to deep. And in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and your breakers have swept over me. He feels like he's drowning. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Right? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. As we open up this psalm, we find this picture as he's describing the season that he's in and what it feels like. And it's this picture in, in verse 1. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water. Right? And deer, unlike sheep, are not dumb animals. You know, we'll be talking about sheep in this series as well. But deer are not like sheep, right? Deer don't wait until they're starving of thirst and dying to go looking for water, right? And so the picture is of this deer, right, that's panting. That's not just a thirsty deer. That is a deer that's on the brink of losing its life. It's looking for water. And the picture is almost like a, of a deer coming down out of the high country to where he normally finds the river, right, and assuages his thirst, Right, but instead, what he finds is a dry riverbed. And now he's in trouble. Right? And he begins to expound on this, right? saying, you know, my soul thirsts for God and for the living God. Right? In the same statement, he's saying, this is what it's like. Right? I'm the deer, God is the riverbed, and it's, he's, he's dry. He's gone. He says, when can I go and meet God? And over and over and over, we find him expressing this frustration, this disillusionment. With God, you know, and it's not that he doesn't believe in God. It's like all of a sudden that God's just not seemingly there, right? God goes silent, 
right? Prayers feel like they're just being thrown against the wall, right? He can't taste God in his soul. He can't smell, see, hear God. He's just gone off the radar, and he's so frustrated. And it's, again, it's not that he doesn't believe. It's that just the reality and experience of God's presence is gone, right? He's in the winter, right? He's experiencing spiritual dryness and spiritual drought, spiritual deadness, Right? And what I think is really important for us to first see is, is when you open up the Psalms, there are Psalms where the psalmist is in this place. And it's because the psalmist, you know, he's talking about guilt. You know, so David, for example, talks about this. David, who, you know, commit adultery, commit murder, commit some really biggies as far as sin goes. And he finds himself in this place, and he's expressing remorse and guilt. He's grieved the heart of God, which is grieving his heart and soul. And so there are those times when we're in that place, right, when we need to do some spiritual surgery, right? There's some repentance that needs to happen. And we're going to go there, but here's the important part. That's not what's happening in this psalm. Right? The psalmist has not done anything wrong. He's not expressing guilt or remorse or regret for actions that he's done or things he hasn't done that he should have. Right, he's, he just is in that place. He just finds himself in the winter just because. Right, and it's so important because all of us will find ourselves there. And I think for some of us, depending on your church background, because of just American whatever, our culture, for, for, as Americans, like we want to know when something goes wrong, we want to know who's responsible so we can sue them. You know what I mean? Like there's got to be a rational explanation. And as good Westerners, we're going to figure out, all right, this is what happened and this is why it happened, right? So we can fix it. And sometimes in this kind of environment, in church environment especially, that's exactly what we start doing. Somebody expresses grief, like grief and disconnection and heartache, and we jump into fix-it mode and, and immediately assume that they're in that place because of something they did or didn't do. Right? And Tim Keller, who's one of my primary resources this morning, talks about he, he, you know, maybe this is the reason so many of us feel any kind of freedom to just really be honest about how we're doing. To actually say, you know what, I, don't, I haven't felt God in a long time. Right? I experienced... Days, weeks, entire seasons when I'm, I'm not even convinced that God's there. Or if he is there, that he's good. Right? These prayers have gone unanswered. I feel like God left me out to dry. Uh, I'm just in this place. And he says, naturally, sadly, what ends up happening in a lot of contexts like this, at least in American Christianity, is we say things like this. What? Right? God feels distant from you. From you. You're experiencing spiritual deadness. Well... Have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God for all your many blessings? Right? Surely, right, if you were doing things right, you wouldn't be experiencing what you're experiencing right now. But that's not what's going on in this psalm. But the psalmist has not done anything wrong. He's just there. Right? And all of us inevitably will find ourselves in this place. And it's so important for us to get, especially for, I think, like a couple different groups of people. One, especially for new believers, this can be especially important because sometimes we don't really prep people on this, right? They hear the amazing, I was addicted to crack, came to Jesus, and things are great testimony. And then the moment that that doesn't prove true in their life, they're wondering, you know, God feels distant, they're dry, right? They commit their life to Jesus, and the next two years are the worst years they've ever had in their entire life, right? And, and the, I think the temptation is to start to question, well, this doesn't match what, I was, what, I, what was sold to me, you know? Is this even real? You know what I mean? Did I just get like secondhand high spiritually, you know, and I got caught up in the fervor and the excitement and the language and just assumed it was true, but was it all a dream? 
You know, is, is God real? Is Jesus really him? Because uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure anymore. And you've got to know, just because you find yourself in this place, it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. All of us will find ourselves in this place. Right? And I think it's also important for us because, generally speaking, right, probably the majority of us kind of fall into the middle class or upper, upper middle class, perhaps. And depending, again, on your background, it's very easy to buy into what we might call like the middle class gospel, which is kind of the idea that everything that you enjoy are God's blessings. And really, God's will for your life is just to bless you and bless you and bless you in all the ways that you want and give you just about everything your heart desires, right? Not everything. That would be, you know, unreasonable, but mostly everything, right? And we start to think this. And you see it evidence the moment that things start to go wrong, the moment we don't get what we have understood ourselves to be entitled to, a home, multiple vehicles, financial security, right? Peace of mind, marital bliss, all these things. And we start to ask, why God? Why? Right? This isn't the narrative. This isn't what, what I thought this was going to be, right? And, and, and I, we, oh man, I, I was in a conversation this week with a guy who's been in ministry for like 35 years. I have a great amount of respect for this man. And he's, he's ministered all around the United States in rural settings, urban settings, suburban settings. And he said something that made me so mad. Um, he was talking about how to minister to people from the suburbs. And what he said, and I, I love this man, great respect with him, we have a working relationship, but he said, the way that you have to minister to people in the suburbs is, is you, you, you need to affirm that all of their wealth is a good thing, definitely gift from God, and don't call into question what they're supposed to do with that wealth. You know, you need, if you're going to do that, it needs to be on an incremental level, and you never, ever, ever talk about social justice issues or, or poverty or racism or anything like that. You know, and I was just like, so you're telling me I've been doing it wrong, right? Because we talked about all those things, you know? And, and, we, and it, it just made me so incredibly frustrated because what he was saying is basically the only way to not get run out of town is to just affirm what we have, which sets us up to get fr- be very, very frustrated uh, when we no longer have it. And maybe just maybe before we move any further, we just need to remember what the gospel is and what the call of Jesus is, right? Because the gospel, in summary, right, is that you and I are far more sinful than we ever thought and yet far more loved than we could, ever could have dreamed, Right, and that the call to follow Jesus is not to connect yourself to the great sp- spiritual pinata in the sky, right, God, and if you just keep beating it with a prayer stick, all the goodies will fall. Right, it's not that. Right, the call of Jesus is pick up your cross and follow me. Right, die to self. Die to stuff. Right? And, and, and it's not necessarily going to be an easy road. The gift may just be God. Because he's enough, right? He's the blessing. Um, yeah, anyway, so I'm going to turn the page because I'm just going to keep ranting. So anyway, so there's, I don't want to spend a, lot, a ton of time on this, but there are, you know, from a pastoral perspective, some patterns you start to see with people and things that tend to lend themselves to finding yourself into winter, into spiritual drought. Um, one of those things, I just want to talk about three of them briefly. One of those things is a loss of community. All right, so three years ago, Megan and I had a very tight-knit community of friends that we had, we had met most of them through CrossFit, and they had come and gotten connected at Mosaic and began following Jesus and got to baptize them, and they became very, very close friends, extended family. And uh, we watched over a six-month period as one by one, every one of those couples moved out of Lincoln. And 
And honestly, it was, it was devastating for us, right? Because you can't just replace relationships and you can't just replace people. And it paved its way for us what became uh, a very long winter uh, because we had lost our community. And community is that, it's that powerful. It's, it's, and it's, honestly, it's that necessary. Right? The psalmist talks in this psalm about the pilgrim feast, right? Which was a time of God's people coming together and being connected together and praising God together, right? Communal worship communal reading and study of God's word, communal life together, right? But again, this is one of those things we struggle with. This is very, very different from personal devotions, right? And personal prayer and personal worship, right? And because of, I think, just American individualism, this, this is, I think for most of us, if we were really honest, like this is what we, that's what we want. Not the communal thing, right? We want to show up for maybe an hour, 15 minutes on a Sunday morning and Aaron, you better keep it to 15 minutes, because once you get to, like, the 30-minute mark, I'm going to start fidgeting and looking at my phone, and we need to go to lunch, right? And we'll sing a few songs, maybe talk to a couple people. And just that's kind of getting our fix, right? But we, don't, we definitely don't want to be accountable and don't want to enter into real, substantial, biblical community and commune together, study God's word together, pray together, do life together. That, not so much, right? And just to, just to put all my cards on the table, just so you know, that's not the way God designed this thing. In fact, if you do that, you're going to hit a spiritual ceiling very, very quickly, faster than you think. And it's very, very possible in a room this size with this many people that if you've been doing the individual thing for a very long time, it's very possible you hit that spiritual ceiling a long time ago. Right? And it can, that can actually lead to spiritual drought and dryness. And sometimes, I think we can even be so disconnected from the heart of God in the process that we're dry and disconnected from God, but we don't even know it. Because we've been there uh, for so, so long. And community is hard. And community is messy. Right? And community takes work. Especially in a church like this young. Because we're so transient. I feel like I, we could go plant a church in Denver and we have like 200 former Mosaic people immediately, you know, because people are just always moving out. And the truth is if you don't work at it and make time for it and really, really go after it, uh, every two to three years about it seems, uh, you're going to find yourself like the psalmist in a very, very lonely place. Uh, another contributing factor that happens a lot is just life happens, you know, or another four-letter word, right? Things get hard, right? You experience Maybe profound loss, loss of a job, loss of a dream, loss of a relationship, loss of a marriage, loss of a loved one. Suddenly and without warning, the floor drops out from under you. And, and this, is, this is what's happened to the psalmist, and we don't know the details of exactly what's happened in his life. But what we do know is he's in a place where he's so dry, he's so disillusioned and discouraged and just angry with God. And these people in his life are, are, are like just taunting him, right? People who don't believe, and they're just like, where's your God? Where's your God now? The God you talked about, you sing about, a good God. Yeah, where is he? And what we find is it's because he's in uh, this place of spiritual drought and he's in a vulnerable place, it's starting to get to him, right? It's starting to get to his heart. He's starting to ask the question himself, and he does ask the question himself. We know this uh, because in verse 9 he says, Why? Why have you forgotten me? Where did you go? Why don't you care? And the third thing I'll say is another one that, that is big is, is physical deprivation. Um, verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. And we talked about this uh, in our, our Dark Passenger series on depression and anxiety. Um, but we are, and we talked about last week being these integrated, connected people. Right? What we know is that he's not eating, which is a sign, can be a sign of clinical depression. 
He's not sleeping. My tears have been my food day and night, which is another sign of potentially clinical depression and anxiety. Right? Physically, he's not well. And what's happening is because he's physically not well, it's affecting him spiritually. Right? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a, a doctor before he became a pastor, and he wrote this a number of years ago, many years ago. He said, does anyone hold the view that as long as you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what the condition of your body is? He says, you will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. Right? There are some in whose cases it is clear to me that the cause of their depression is mainly physical. And on the other hand, people uh, who are physically weak are more prone to attacks of spiritual discouragement and depression. But if you recognize that, physical, that the physical may be partly responsible for the spiritual condition and you make allowances for this, you'll be better able to deal uh, with the spiritual issues, right? And so last week we talked about the parts of your soul, the parts of you that God has created, your will, your mind, your body, your relationships, your soul. All of those are interconnected, and when you don't take care of yourself physically, it will come to affect you spiritually, right? So the Sabbath, for example, when you fail to rest, which, again, we as Americans are not very good at, right? It comes to affect us spiritually, right? There's a point in Jesus's, where Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. He says, was this actually for God, or was the Sabbath for man, right? And he affirms the Sabbath is for us because we need it, right? So when we don't rest, when we pack our bodies full of junk that doesn't serve us well, lots of beer, lots of liquor, lots of processed foods, right? Eventually, that starts to actually catch up with us because it's all connected. We are connected people. Your soul is connected to your body, you know, and, and it's so important. The reason I say this, right, is when, when we, people find themselves in the valley, in the winter, they're in that place where the fog is thick, whether it's depression or something else. Uh, as people, we just tend to lock in to one fix, one remedy, depending on just how you're wired or maybe your background, right? So some people lock in to the, med- the medical model and they'll say, hey, this is, a, this is a physical issue. This has to do with your body, right? So you need medicine. You know, and there's some people that lock into the therapeutic model and they'll say, hey, you've had experiences that are affecting you. You need to sit down with a professional, with a counselor, and process through them because they're affecting you deeply, right? And then there's the the moral model, which is very American of us, where it's like, look, come on, princess, put your big boy pants on, right? Pull pull yourself up by by your bootstraps and just get over it. Buck up, you know? And And then there's the spiritual model, which we as Christians tend to be really good, well, really bad at would be more accurate. And that's when we're in that deep place, that dark place. And like Job's friends, we say, well, clearly this is a spiritual issue. Clearly you have not done something right. Clearly you're in sin and you need to repent and make it right with God. And I point this out because as as Christians who, who take this thing very, very seriously, right, the reflection of biblical wisdom is not any one of those things. Right, but to take a balanced approach to really think through it. And, and for those of us who you know, are in those places or we have loved ones who are in those places and, and, and are, as a church, we're going to naturally be connected to each other as we walk through those valleys, we need to know this. Right? We should be some of the most balanced and nuanced people on the face of the earth because that's exactly what this thing is. It's beautiful, but it's so, so, so important. So all that to say, with our, our remaining few minutes left, um, I want to address, like, what do we, what do, we do with this? How do, we, how do we respond? Right, when I'm in the winter, how do, I, how do I begin to find my way out? Right, so I want to just look briefly at four things that we see, we'll watch the psalmist actually do in the psalms. And if you're taking notes, uh, here we go. Number one, uh, he pours out his soul. 
Right, verse 4, he says, I pour out my soul. And he says it in verse 4, but Psalm 42 and 43, which can be read together, he's doing it over and over and over again. Right? He is just going after it with God. And he knows, like, we watch this, and he is so brutally honest with God. He doesn't edit himself. He doesn't Photoshop or Instagram himself. Like, he is just raw before God. And he brings all of it, the anger, the cynicism, the disillusionment, the frustration, all of it. He says, God, where are you? Are you good? Are you there? Have you abandoned your covenant with your people? Right now, I read this, it's like, this is such an incredible thing because in this, God doesn't berate him for it. God doesn't say, or nor does he says, say to David in the other Psalms uh, that we find this going on, he, God doesn't say to the psalmist, how dare you? How dare you question my character or my goodness or my covenant? God doesn't do that. God just embraces him right where he's at, which is such, such a beautiful, incredible thing. You know, and so he invites us to do the exact same thing. So it's like, Aaron, you don't understand. I don't feel anything. Fine. Bring that to God. Tell him, I don't feel anything. Right? No, Aaron, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm really angry with God. Right? I don't trust him. I don't like him. I don't want to be here. I don't want to hear your stupid mouth talk for 35 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm here because I lost a bet or whatever. You know? Bring that to God. He invites us to. Say, God, I'm going to talk to you about your silence. And you know what? I don't expect you to talk back. You know, God, I'm going to talk to you about how frustrated I am. Not that you care. God can handle your most honest prayers. And one of the incredible gifts of the Psalms is that God invites all of it to the throne. All of it to the foot of the cross. Bring it all. And oftentimes he meets us there. And even in those times when it doesn't feel like he does. Right, one of the things I would just encourage you when you find yourself in this place, the temptation is going to be to disconnect and to numb and to turn up the noise in your life. But when you're in the winter, that is a time when I would encourage you to just be as adamant as possible about going to God, even if it's in frustration and anger. He invites us to. Secondly, secondly, number two, he takes a long, hard look at where he's been placing his hope. A long, hard look. And he begins to analyze where he's placing his hope. So we find in verse 5, 11, the next chapter uh, in verse 5 of 43, he says this refrain three times. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Right? Why are you disquieted within me? Three times he does that. Right? And, and a number of the commentators, uh, including um, Tim Keller, who I have a great amount of respect for as a scholar and pastor, the, they all say this is not a rhetorical question. Right? He's looking for information. He wants to know, why are you downcast? Why? Right, he wants to know. And so he's beginning to ask the question, could it be possible that I've been placing my hope in something other than God? Right? I, I can't remember if it was John Calvin, maybe. Somebody can correct me on this quote, uh, who said that our hearts are idol factories. You know, that we just have a tendency to go to that place, to, to put other things in God's place. You know, one of the best ways to, to analyze your hopes and ask whether you have an idol is just ask, what is it in your life when you have it? You are overwhelmed with joy. You feel so great about life and yourself. But the moment it's taken away, you feel just devastated. Whatever that is, there's your idol. There's your answer. You know, so like the most obvious example 
is, you know, as a young church and as a young guy is young gals uh, in Mosaic. And every now and then you see it, you know, and, and they, they get in a new relationship and they are lit up like a Christmas tree. Like they feel like a million dollars. There's a bounce in their step, you know. They're posting all over Facebook, you know, and you're just like, give it a rest, you know. Been dating for a week, my gosh, you know. But you watch it, and then, of course, they disappear for a while, is usually what happens, and then they come back weeks or months later, and they look like they get hit by a bus, right? And because I can stalk on Facebook, I do, you know, and usually I hop on, and, uh, you know, and sure enough, what happened is the relationship ended, you know? And that's a great single example of what I'm talking about. And the thing about idols is idols always overpromise and underdeliver. They tell you they're going to make you happy and give you that thing, that hole, that thing that you're longing for, that happiness that has been just hard to come by. They tell you that's going to do that, but it never does. Right? Whether it's accolades or fame or financial security or peace or whatever, uh, it never does what it promises. What it promises. And so you've got to ask, you know, when you find yourself in that winter, uh, even, even the psalmist, which, by the way, just to remind you, it's not that he's in sin. We know that. It's not that he did something wrong, but even in that place, he's doing some self-examination and asking, have I placed my hope and faith in the wrong stuff? Uh, And then number three, he remembers the loving kindness of God. I love this. In verse six, he says, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember. Therefore I will remember. Remember what? He says, I will remember you. Right? Not just in a general way. In verse eight, he says this, by day the Lord directs his love. Right At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Right, The, the word loving kindness here is kesed, which means covenanted faithfulness, unmerited grace, unconditional love. He says, in this place of winter, I am going to discipline myself to remember you, to remember your character, to remember, Lord God, your faithfulness, to your people and to me, to remember the grace that you've given your people, the grace you've given to the world, the grace you've given to me in my life, right? The the favor, the blessings, the goodness, when all hope seems lost and it feels and looks like the darkness is overtaking any ounce of light in that place, right? I will remember you, right? And one of the coolest things is he takes this heart-wrenching season that he's in, Right, in these brutally honest, raw prayers, and he actually turns them into a song for God to use. And actually, now we're reading them thousands of years later, giving us permission to do the same. It's an incredible thing that God takes his pain, takes his sorrow, takes his frustration, takes whatever loss it is that he experiences, and he actually creates out of that something beautiful and redemptive. And I'll tell you, if I have learned anything about God, this is the business that he is in if you will let him. Right, I can't remember who said it, but uh, it was a quote you know, saying that, that nothing is wasted in God's economy. And man, I've experienced that time and time again. That God takes the worst. And if we'll let him out of it, he brings out sometimes just the, the best things that are used for God's glory and our good, even if we can't see it in the winter. And lastly, uh, I'll say this, right? He pours out his heart. He analyzes his hopes. He remembers the loving kindness of God. And then, lastly, this is so important. He preaches to his heart. Right? Notice in the, in the three refrains, uh, he's not talking to God. Right? He doesn't say, why am I, is my heart and soul downcast, oh my God? 
And he's not talking to other people. He doesn't say, why am I downcast? Oh, my peers. Right? He's talking to his own heart. He says, why am I downcast? Oh, my soul. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is, this is the key. If we, if we get the rest of it, but we miss this, the winters are going to be excruciating, and finding our way out is going to be next to impossible. And that is that he does spend the time listening to his heart. But there comes a point where he turns the corner and he starts addressing what's in here. Right? Which is hugely important because culture will tell you, listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Right? The truth is all in here. Do what you feel. Right? And allow that to guide your path. Horrible advice. Horrible advice. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17.9 says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Right? Ze- exactly zero times in the Bible that it, does it tell us to follow our feelings, to follow our heart. But 241 times, it tells us, it commands us, it urges us, believe the Father, believe the promises, believe the Son. Right? Anchor yourself on that. Preach that to yourself. You know, in between services, I was talking to a gal who calls Mosaic home. And man, is she in a winter right now. Right? Her husband was in a very serious car accident this last year. Uh, he was in a coma for a number of weeks. Uh, they went into intensive care, and, and, and it, he really was making a lot of pro- progress, and things looked really positive for a while. But there's been serious relapse in, over the last couple months. And we're talking, and she just shared with me um, what we had feared, and that is that Apart from a miracle, he's not going to make it. He said, she said, he's on a ventilator. Uh, they can't get the pneumonia to stay away. Um, she said, either God's going to raise him with a miracle that the doctors say is not very likely, if not impossible, um, or we're going we're gonna to lose him soon. And I've been watching her walk through this for the better part of a year now with such grace and such class. You know, and I, I don't know what that would do to you if you can even put yourself there emotionally, mentally to imagine what it would be like. Your spouse of 20, 30 years, who you've raised a family with, who's a provider of your home, your rock in many ways, your partner, just taken like that. And what she told me, she said, you know, and I'm just quoting her. I didn't pay her to say this. She says, this is so spot on. She said, all day long I'm sitting with my husband and I can see, like, we have this connection in her eyes, but his body just won't cooperate. Like, the, the damage is too far. And so she said, the only thing I can do, the only thing that's keeping me in it is preaching to myself all day long from the moment I get out of bed, reminding myself that God is faithful and God is good and God's going God's to gonna bring me through this winter and he's going to use it for, for his glory and my good. And my family, even if I can't see it right now. She said, I believe that, but I have to tell myself that every minute of every day. And I'm watching this from afar, just how God is already using it. You know, and this week I'm going to be sitting down with her to plan her husband's funeral. And, and what she wants, what she's telling me, she's like, I want to talk about the kingdom of God. And I want, to, I want people to know, you know, the kind of man my husband was, but he was that man because of Jesus, right? I, I, want us to, I want God to use this whole thing however he sees fit. So can we get together and dream about that? 
You know, I, I hear that, and I'm just like, I'm not worthy, you know? It's a saint. But she's preaching to her heart. What she's not doing is king into her heart and saying, hey, what is true? How are you feeling? I'm going to allow that behavior to, to influence my behavior. She's saying, what lies am I believing? What truths do I need to combat it with? Right? Are there hopes that are false in here? Are there idols that need to be addressed? Right? Because I'm going to point all of them to Jesus. You know, and in the midst, God is already doing such, such an incredible, incredible work. So here's, here's what I want to do in our last moments together this morning. Band, you can come on up. Because I know in a room this size, um, we, we come to this place from a lot of different places. Uh, some of you are in a great season, and you're like, man, this is depressing. <laughs> you know, why did I come? You know, uh, I need to listen to some positive pop music as soon as I get out of here, you know. <clears throat> and, and that's great. God bless you <laughs> if that's you. Uh, but the truth is there's people around you this morning that are not where you're at. In a room this size, there are people that are in the dead of winter right now. And God feels so distant and unloving and you're wrestling with doubt, and you weren't sure you want to be here this morning. And there are others of you that you can, it's like you can feel the wind, the coolness in the air, and winter's coming. You don't know why, but it is. And God's voice is getting more and more quiet. Connecting with him is taking more and more effort, and you just know that that's probably going to be a part of the next season. Right? And wherever you happen to be at, it's, even if you're not in that place, it's so important because we're connected. We're, we are a church family, a church body. Right? We need to know how to love people through the winter well. Right? And for those of us who are in that place, this is a chance. My challenge to you is that right now, you would take this time to begin to pour out your heart and your soul. Right? To begin to ask, have I been placing my hope in places that I shouldn't be placing my hope in, they are ultimately going to disappoint me, that are not my creator. Right? To, to use this as an opportunity to remember the loving kindness of God and to begin to preach to your heart. All right, so we're going to sing a, a very appropriate song, one of my favorite songs that we sing together, Oh God. Right, and this is a chance to sing, you know. In the valley, oh God, you're near. Even though I don't feel you and I can't see you, I know you're near because you say you are, right? And in the quiet, even when I can't hear you, when you're silent, you're near. And that regardless of what I feel right now, they, that nothing can separate me. No height, no depth can separate me from the love of you. So if you would, Mosaic, let's stand and let's close by doing that together right now.